Yo, this is Zero from El Vu and LA Natives Podcast. And I'm happy to announce that Malinali Superfoods now has a storefront location. And we invite all our community to come and partake in our family recipes, in our ancient foods, and in our intention. Our intention is to gather our community, to share the wisdom of our ancestors, but most of all, have a place to be ourselves. So we invite you to come to 4528 Whittier Boulevard in the heart of East Los Angeles. So come, stop by, enjoy our awas, our superfood smoothies, our nutrient powders, and understand that food is our medicine. Our ancestors were brilliant engineers, and they created strong, powerful foods that we share with the community. Aho, ometeo, tonansi, tonato. Las Aslan Natives Podcast. What's up, Yo. Zero? What up, what up? How you guys doing out there? Community. Yes, today we got um, some really cool guests. We, we, nothing but VIPs today. Absolutely, bro. In they, the building. These are uh, very courageous individuals who make statements in the city of Los Angeles. My brother Jag, brother Yvette, I mean sister Yvette. And they're here to share their story. What up, Jag? What's up, brother? Go ahead and put the mic as close as possible. Right, oh, right. man. Here we go. What's up? Great. Um, how have you been? I've been good, brother. Been good. Been keeping busy. Yvette? Same. Same. Wow. But glad to be here once again. Thank you. So we have a very special show today. Um, go ahead and break it down, Jag. Whoa. Well, the show today is um, about the action that was um, done against Dodger Corporation. Um, it was an interesting situation and how it came about. Um, it's kind of funny because it all started, it seems that it all started kind of off of a dare. Um, are you done to do something like this? Are you done to do something like that? You know, and um, when I got word of that, and um, obviously also, the reason why it should have been done, the what happened to the displacement of the three neighborhoods up there on that hill, you know, Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. And um, I felt it in my heart that, you know, this is a, a worthwhile cause and um, definitely um, something that's worth risking, you know, a little, um, a little something, something, you know, seem to get the word out. Sometimes as um, revolutionaries or people within this movement, you know, we always um, visualize freedom and obtaining things that were taken away from us that um, are dear to our hearts. And um, when I found out about the story about all those people that were up in those barrios and um, the corporation existing and the way um, it has bamboozled and tricked many of our people to... Um, blindly support them and um, I basically came to the conclusion we're like you know this is something that is worth our while and something that First Nation Syndicate will really want to be part of um, you know talking to my sister from Buried Under the Blue Melissa and uh, knowing them in the back and just knowing their story and knowing their mission and uh, when both elements came together I knew that it was something I had to get involved in, you know, especially wow. with really cool people like Yvette, Brother Eden, and Wendy. 
You know what I'm saying? Um, they're very busy people. They're, they're always active. They're always putting in work. And I thought it was an honorable situation. And I thought it was something that I didn't want to miss out on. Crazy. Yo, that's deep, right, Zero? Yeah, I mean, to make a statement against the Dodgers for doing the displacement of the, you know, Mexican community that lived there in Chavez Ravine. Right. And not a lot of people even know about that story, to be honest with you. Mm. Yeah, no. Well, I didn't know about it till I was already, what? I want to say 30. I was already 30 before I heard that story. And that was because my sweat leader, you know, he used to live there. So he was one of the families that got kicked out. And so that's how I knew about it. So let me ask you, Yvette, how did you get involved? <clears throat> Well, I'm really close to Eden and Wendy. Shout out to both of them because this is how the idea, the seed was planted. Um, this is our life, everyday conversations, whether it is at an event, at home, just little get togethers. This is all that we talk about. And, you know, they, they started with that there. Like, are you down? No, you're not. Um, and they brought it to me and I'm like, hell yes, I'm down. Um, but again, just learning that our people, nuestra gente, they continue to go through these things over and over again throughout history and um, see the evolution of these events. You know, it might be uh, families, an entire community, three communities at a time. It might be just abuelita trying to fight for her shop, her, her casa, su casita. But it continues to happen all the time. So. You know, anything that has to do with my people and their rights and their sovereignty, that's, I'm right there. So that's how I got involved. So, you know, I feel the same way, guys. Like, people were bamboozled. That's a great term. Because since day one for me, I was never really into the whole Dodger thing because, you know, I had a conversation with Zero, right? And it just like, it already marks you. When you're in the hood wearing Dodger shit. Oh, yeah. That's how I see it, Jack. Yeah. Like, if you're from the hood and you're rocking Dodgers, bro, you're already, you know, assort them to, to the police. That's yeah. how I see it. And that's how I grew up, bro. Yeah. You know, and just being an original person out here since the 90s, you know, we rocked that LA hat forever, brother. You know what I'm saying? And, and um, dude, we... You can even say I'm pretty sure people even died for that hat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Unfortunately, you know, and um, it's something that um, now that we um, take well, it into perspective, the whole situation is like, oh my god. Yeah, uh, that's that's the point. That's the point <laughs> is that you were either marked, either marked like as somebody who did bad things, like obviously a cholo or somebody breaking the law, right? Or someone from another barrio is going, hey, what are you doing here? And you know. And bad things happen after that. But how did it get to that point, guys, where it was like the the gear to get if you were from from the hood? Obviously, a lot of money, you know, invested by a corporation. Right. You know what I'm saying? And a well-planned out, really intelligent tactic, you know what I'm saying, to uh, include... Um, um, brown sports players Brown um, sports announcers And um, have the people connect to that I, What I trip about is how The connection became Like the Sureño Gang affiliation To the 
to the M and to the Sureño and it being like the uniform. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because technically that's what it became. Yeah. A lot of people are like talking about it out here, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, you, you know, if you're, you don't wear that hat, it's because you ain't, you ain't about it. You ain't from Los, you know what I'm saying? Like, that symbols everywhere. People have it tattooed all over their bodies. And 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 that's that's the power of influence, right, guys? Sports in general, I'm not a big fan. I don't know. Are you guys big fans of sports? Not really. I like playing. I like playing sports more than anything. Or at least I used to because I'm kind of champion. We had a conversation about this, right, Zero? I used to be a huge fan. Yeah. I mean, from, like, the age of, like, 10 to about, like I said, 30 um, once I found out the story of um, Chavez Ravine and how they just displaced everybody who was living there. Not Chavez Ravine, or, by the way. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the, you know, the displacement of those of the ones you mentioned. I don't know them. You know, I don't know the... the, the we, we will say, we'll say it's um, Palo Verde. Palo Verde. La so. Loma and Bishop. Bishop. Right. And we will not forget yeah. that it existed and we will continue to tell the story and making sure that they continue to live. You know, Chavez Ravine, the whole concept of Chavez Ravine, it's like a smoke screen to cover the existence of those three neighborhoods, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so about that, that. That, that whole area, I didn't know the, the, the names of the towns before, other than my sweat leader mentioning that he used to live there. That's it. And when he said it, he said Chavez Ravine. So I'm referencing him. And that's all. But the story of itself. And, you know, and who's, who is there. this Chavez Ravine guy? I don't know. Give me a fucking back. A well, well, I'm sure that um, um, brother and sister from Buried Under the Blue are going to be able to like give you all those details by the day, by the name, and everything well, like apparently that. Apparently, like they lived there, right? Or they, yeah, during that. From time. what I heard, it's like from what I think. And I'm pretty sure my sister will correct me later <laughs> if I'm wrong. But um, from the um, Frogtown side of Elysian Park, mm. you know, what I'm saying from that other side, there was the owner that owned that that land, which really had nothing to do with the three neighborhoods. You know, what I'm saying so. Um, they just kind of like. Blanket it over You know what I'm saying With that name And with that property Which really had nothing to do With the neighborhood at all Even if they didn't Agree to sell the property Or they were in a dispute of that They just claimed Imminent domain And that's that You know Just like they did With the 710 freeway When they went through Basically Through those neighborhoods So no matter what Even if you have Paperwork deeds If they want that land They're gonna get that land Through imminent domain yeah. Period You know And I think pretty much they didn't get that far because they just went in there brutally with cops and they just removed people, you know, by force. And if I can add real quick, I, I think one of the points that gets missed in this conversation is that every time that there's this amount of money involved, that means that automatically we get over policing of our communities. So to that point, LA is the epicenter of police killings in the entire nation. And you know what we have the most in LA? Mexican descendants, people who come from Mexico. So, you know. The, the West Coast of Los, I mean, this this area alone is worth so much money just because of the the growth of it since the 30s, you know? And it's, it's I mean, pretty much rivaling New York. Mm-hmm. So the property value is gonna be skyrocket. And yes, policing is to protect property. Right. And who owns that property. And just like in this case of Palo, wait. La Loma. Palo Verde. La Loma. Palo Verde and Bishop. Bishop. <laughs> there you go. I'm going to reference Jay because he knows them and he's going to have sure, my back. Sure. Um, just like they did there, they used police to physically, I mean, there's pictures on the internet where they're dragging 
a, a senora out you know one has the feet the other has the the arms and they're pulling her out of her house that's like police brutality back yes. in the day and what we you know? gotta understand is this whole displacement where we've been reliving it over 500 years over and over again as soon as we get a hold of something or we we you know get it out the mud and physically have to work extra 20 times more harder than any other person to obtain something here comes the white man again and just pulls the rug right underneath our feet and takes away everything we've had we've been relieving this over and over for 500 years and that's where the history of los angeles comes into place you know saying um when um america took over los angeles from mexico you know i'm saying a lot of bad things started happening to the um the californianos the mexicans and native californian california natives that were in the area you know what i'm saying so los angeles has a really deep history of um of, of being enslavers and obviously that's where the police comes because the police are the overseers and the right. protectors of the financial interest of those that came to colonize the lands and to um take over so uh, if we really we don't have to really go that far but we start paying attention to the history of los angeles when it was built the awful laws um that um have evolved where they began why people ended up on that hill you got we got to understand that that hill was nowhere nice before yeah. now it's beautiful now it's like billion dollar properties yeah. and stuff like that you know so but back in the day there was no running water mm -hmm. there was no pavement it was it was uh they were testing pesticides back there they were doing all kinds of really bad things so they just threw all those brown people up there because you know they just wanted them out of the way where they were not going to bother their pretty um, streets that were being unpaved and they were being all cool but they could come down to work to slave to provide them the opportunity to have more wealth but then they had to go back up to the hill right but and you know, and uh, I was, you know, I had a conversation with Zero about this where, like, we were even saying, like, they probably all went down to East L.A., South Central, you know what I'm saying, the east side of Los Angeles, I, I would think. Right, Zero? Yeah, well, right after they got displaced, they, they had, a, you know, that's where they flooded too. you know, the east side of town, which is where East L.A. is now, the heart of East L.A. But one thing about the conversation is that the communities are always referred to as like barrios and slums. And yes, Jack is right. They had like really un unlivable conditions, but yet they thrived. Yeah. They made it beautiful. They were self-sufficient. And that's when they became targeted. That's when they became a danger because they were constructing something that was not existent for our people back then. So yeah, in their standards, in the colonial standards, they, they were not up to speed with with you know like the white communities but what they were doing they i mean growing their own food and sharing with each other it, it, they were just like an autonomous community at that point that they had that potential to really reclaim sovereignty so of course that's going to be a danger you know of course it's going to be uh, an issue for this system well during that time when that happened i mean los angeles was booming right they there's a lot of um, money coming in from so many different areas. That's why we have what we have today, you know, Hollywood and Venice Beach and probably million dollar properties on, on um, Malibu. I mean, that's how valuable this land was back then. So land was gonna get reconstructed and people were gonna be displaced. We, as a community, have to revisit those stories over and over again. I posted about this like two years ago 
on my IG. I did a whole little thing about it because that's when my sweat leader, we had just gotten out of sweat and I just put a lot of attention to it. And, you know, so I put some pictures together and showed the truth of like what the Dodgers are, you know, because, you know, like everyone else probably growing up, maybe not everyone else, but I know in my community, in my neighborhood, everybody was a Dodger fan. Right. Well, Especially you know, when Fernando Valenzuela was there because, you know, I, he was Mexican. I honestly could admit I haven't been to a Dodger game since I was a teenager. Hmm. And when I was 12, 11 years old, when I went, horrible experience. Because when you live in poverty, you can't afford the good seats. So you're in yeah. the nosebleeds. Yeah. And you just look around and everyone's just drunk and acting like a fool. That, so that, that was my was that, that was, was my experience. It wasn't even a baseball game. That, that that's been my experience too because my my parents were way too and I was to even take us traumatized. to the nosebleeds. I was traumatized. I so never went back. My story just is my parents were poor, too, so poor that they can't even afford the the nosebleeds. Right? We were like fucking watching it on TV if it came <laughs> out. Right? And pretending in the street that we were these baseball players. Right? And you know, it just, it, it really kind of just, that's the, that's what the big brothers were doing. That's what the older brothers were doing. They were watching this game and they told us, sit down and go get me a beer. And, you know, we felt like we were one of them. And then when they got happy, we got happy. So we looked at the TV and it was the fucking Dodgers. They hit a home run or someone got struck out or they win something. Mm. And then we get, you know, sucked into this vortex of that. But... I changed my opinion on sports just because I started realizing what they were. And not only with baseball, but with football, right? Football's the worst because it's like slaves being bred <laughs> to be these ultra physical people that run into each other as fast as they can, you know, with no regard to what their body's going to feel like after that, how much injury they come with, you know, they're bred to be that. Which right. actually began in the slave days, right? During the you know slave trade, the, the mixing of certain slaves to create, you know, bigger size slaves for certain Absolutely. Work jobs, and yeah, stuff like that. I mean, so. at the African American media, have, you know, th their physicality has to do with the amount of work they used to have to do. But and you know, breeding, what? interbreeding be... the big one. Oh, that's a big one. That's a big one. Put them together, you know, and like lab rats, right? You know? And I'm just not into sports, me personally. I just think it's a huge goddamn distraction. Well, every time that I've gone, I've gone maybe like four or five times to Dodger Stadium, and it was boring as hell. Except for the <laughs> last time I went, it was pretty cool. <laughs> yes, I, I agree with that. That was like I the agree. most exciting time I've ever had in Dodger Stadium. Yeah, I tripped out when I went to my when I finally could afford to go to a Dodger game. I didn't like it because I didn't hear nobody talking on the fucking like. Okay, now battering up, blah, 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 and they're talking like you know you're used to the commentary. And you're just sitting there hearing this other person talk and this guy's drunk <laughs> and they're fighting and it's a whole it's it's like a Roman Coliseum, and really. It's a, and it's a trip because you know our people make up seventy percent of their financial support. But, wow. Wow. I didn't know that. Nine million dollars a game, bro. Nine million dollars a game. Brown people. You know, Imagine if that money was kept in the community. You, you know, and, and the thing is they're there rent free. But on that, you know what I'm saying? The stadium exists there rent free, and they're basically kicking percentages to the city of Los Angeles, you know what I'm saying? And then the overseers are there present, protecting the interest of the city of Los Angeles, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, it's crazy, bro. And you walk into the spot, and you're thinking, like, $9 million a game, and you see everybody just 
there's all these stores there and everyone's just buying and buying it's all brown people just spending and spending and spending and they got these huge bars people are buying 90 dollar tickets to go sit at the bar and drink 15 20 dollar beers you know what i'm saying like not even well, to watch the game it's not just that right <laughs> you know, like, like it's crazy bro art, sports in general like you go to the bar and watch it I, I never understood that. Too. It's a like, contradiction, isn't it? You know, like <laughs> sport and like uh, preaching health and being fit. And then they sell you these images and this poison that continues to feed disease in our community. But yeah. that's the power of propaganda. And, and I want to make that point. Uh, well, um, I, I, I don't drink. I, neither do I. You know, yeah, and I just have to. Say well, then sports is out of the question for you. <laughs> you have to be drunk to enjoy it. Maybe not, that's not why we're not into it. Exactly. Yeah, we're like, not into it. Maybe yeah, it's, it's not going to work for someone who don't drink. That's, 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 a yeah. that's a part of that's a part the bad food, the 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 high caloric drink that comes with it that just kind of gets you buzzed and just makes you more bloated more than anything. I guess what what sports were designed to do by the Romans was to that's demasculate right. men. Right, because you go and you watch the game, and that person on the field has a perfect physique, and you feel like you're that person, but you don't go run, you don't go fucking to the park and let people throw hundred mile balls at you so you can hit it. No, you just live vicariously through these sports figures, and you believe that you're that they hear you as you say, yeah, and you know, you it's all this imagination that's happening. It's to demasculate men, and and I, right? I the, they these, can live vicariously through the athlete, and and I, they know everything about them. And these people are really trophies, mm -hmm. you know, because I, even when we see one of us like being successful, quote unquote successful, being part of a team, and that person looks like you, that person comes from the same place that you come from. They speak your language. It's almost like if he can make it, anyone can make it. And they sell you the idea that you work hard and you can get there one day. And again, that's the power of propaganda. Propaganda has been like a machine designed to really brainwash people. And this, this is a technique that the Nazis developed so well using psychology and people's trauma. So it's embedded in everything that we see in capitalism. That's how it thrives. So Fernando Valenzuela and Urias, they're really trophies to make us feel like we can partake in their system that, first of all, is not even designed for us. I mean, even even his name, you know, was basically hijacked by the corporation. Mm -hmm. They own the name Fernando Valenzuela. Yeah. So he's not even allowed to put his name on anything, you know, say without their permission or, they, or them getting their cut. Wow. You know what I'm saying? There's rumors of even... Um, Tommy Lasorda referring to him as the wetback. Hey, wetback, make sure you throw it on the fastball. If not, we're gonna take you back where we fucking found you. Damn. How is that any different <laughs> from the slaves? You yeah. also. Yeah. Fernando Venezuela, right? Valenzuela. Uh, Venezuela. Um, I had a conversation with my dad, you know, and I was shocked that at the time that when he won the World Series, and part of his growth like my dad was completely against the dude because he felt like he was a pawn because yeah. i'm because you know uh, i was just surprised that my dad was yes. into the politics way back when 
regarding the displacement. So even back in, I believe in the late 70s, early 80s, there was a big movement too. Yeah. And my dad was a part of that. Yeah, everyone who lived through it has the same feeling that we have about it. Yeah. It's the it's the the Angelinos that came after the fact that they didn't live through it, that they didn't see it, that they didn't know about it. You know what I'm saying? They're the most protective of the Dodger Corporation. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But anyone, gang. anyone that was here pre Fernando Venezuela, anyone here that's been in Los Angeles for three to four generations, mm-hmm. those guys know what's up. You know what I'm saying? They're grand, they grew up with their grandpas and grandmas being teary eyed and telling them stories of, of these horrible situations and stuff like that. So those guys are keep, keep it true to this day, you know, but obviously they're starting to die off now because of their age. You know what I'm saying? And um, only some of their descendants are carrying, you know what I'm saying, their their vision, their perspective. But everyone that came after the fact, all these new people that came into Los Angeles are the ones that are most protective of the corporation. And, and I, I just want to add um, that these things are not from the past. If you, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about uh, a 92 year old woman in Texas who's the only person standing in her community, Durango, Duranguito, something like that. And they're trying to get rid of her because they want to build some kind of like convention center to have concerts. So we have the, the, the relatives in Northern Nevada right now in a standoff because there's lithium in their land. So corporations right now are trying to build a mine and that's in their way. So again, this has evolved. We might not be stadiums being built in those areas, but they're coming with their money, with their civilization of that, continuing the displacement of people. And look at those people. They, they look like me and you. So this is not a thing from the past. It's something that we continue to live today. So when they tell us, get over it, that was a long time ago. No, it's not. It's still happening today. And that's why we're making this stand. That's why it's so important for us that people understand and, and they make it personal. They need to see themselves and hear themselves when we hear the stories. When, when I met some of the elders who lived through that time, I, there's no going back. There's no unseen, forgetting. We don't forgive and we don't forget. That's, that's it. That, that, shit, that shit cuts your heart, bro. When, yeah. when, you're, when you're talking to an elder and she's like crying and telling you like what she saw as a little kid and... Like she saw her mom go through. It's like, oh hell no! Like, you know, I'm ready to, I'm ready to put my hands up. I'm ready to fight for this. You know, because uh, hell no! You know, like that's my people right there. You know, and it's, I could see the hurt. The hurt is embedded. The trauma is embedded. It's generational. It's, it's you know that it's not forgotten. You know. You know what? When when I was a kid, my parents put me into the YMCA, and. I don't know what it was, but they're always just drilling me. Sports, 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 sports. <laughs> I was traumatized, guys. Yeah, I just, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a part of the Roman circus, man. No it's, more balls. No more balls. It's, it's a part of this Roman circus that, that they get us into these games and they invent these games that, that uh, take our money, take our time. I mean, I can honestly remember watching sports and if my team lost i would be upset yeah not like i would internally be upset and you know i don't know why right i have no money vested in them (laughs) they pay me no dividends they have no they don't even know who the fuck i am they could give a shit 
right it's all in your mind right and you're living vicariously through these individuals because you go well he should have made that pass sooner and like trying to be in the mind of the quarterback that's doing the play like why would you talk about something that will never happen you'll never be in that person's mind so it's really designed to distract distract you to the point where i went man i'm fucking wasted a lot of money and time on this shit (laughs) But, you know, awakening and and showing others that, you know, what it is, and then you make a a sovereign decision because that's what we're about. We're about sovereign decisions and event, you know, we would love everyone to be like, fuck the Dodgers and get them out of here. But that was a movida from the East Coast, right? Because they were an East Coast team, right? So they were bringing New York to Los Angeles. Now basically, New York didn't want them from the story without getting into detail because I don't have all the exact information. But the owner of the Dodgers, he was looking for a new place to put the stadium in New York. But New York didn't want to didn't want to mess with him. You know what I'm saying? At the time, here in LA, there was a lot of changes going on. At that time, um, the hill was already being um, taken over. So when um, the mayor of Los Angeles found out, got in cahoots with this guy, somebody introduced both of them. Well, if you come over here, you know, we'll give you this. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Before. <laughs> and this is all before. Yeah. Because people think that, oh, like the Dodgers have nothing to do with it. Go with the city. Go with the system. Well, first of all, none of these people are around to be held accountable. So how do we hold them accountable if they're gone, right? Mm-hmm. And second, it's not something uh, like benign from the Dodgers. They knew what they were doing. There was an agreement before all of this even went down. And that's a good point. That's a good point. They knew what they were doing. Right. They always know what they're doing. This doesn't happen by coincidence. This is a plan, right? That's what I'm saying, that New York came to Los Angeles with big money. And with those, it's not that a ball a ball game or a, a team came from New York to here. But what comes with that team, Jack? All the investor guys, all the rich Definitely. money, all the people going, oh, shit, I have multi-million dollars. And look at these brown people over here i can buy that land and get these in new york came to los angeles with the dodgers that's right all that fucking pilgrim energy yep. <laughs> fucking moved in with that team straight up, straight up. And, and, they, and they played as big time now that you look back at it and they played as big time with fernando valenzuela that's just yeah. out, bro. Damn, that's they fucking and, got and, me, and it's so brilliant it. it's evil like I believe in evil in hell because they've taught me that it's real. They they are the devil. That really like it, it's so brilliant and so well orchestrated that it's it's evil. Like there's no other way to put it. Um, you really make profit of people's lives and well-being. But that's how the entire system thrives, you mm-hmm. know. And, and you know, and unfortunately, within this whole move, um, it's almost like this war. Um, begun um, us versus the Dodger fans, you know, and um, the thing is that we weren't really the first ones to pull that trigger because when it all started, we I remember one of the first posts that I did um, post um, the action was of um, Sister Wendy and her injuries, you know what I'm saying? And I did that on, on TikTok and that reached over 150,000 views or something like that on my TikTok. Um, That's just right off the platform, back, right off the back. <laughs> Man, I'm talking about brown men and yep. brown women started just saying one after the other, that's what she gets, that's what she deserves, 
I hope they do it to her again. Go Dodgers. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I'm like, and I'm watching it like, what the hell? Are you serious? You're going to see a brown woman hurt physically and bruised up and beat down, you know what I'm saying, by a cop, by, you know what I'm saying, by off duty police officers right. under the payroll of a Dodger corporation with a bad history. And, and you're going to be so blinded by your devotion and your fanness that you're going to, like, straight. This the sister that got hurt. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So well, that, that but was. that that that's what happens in a belligerent crowd where where they're just drinking, and you know they're not even really there. For all that's what I'm saying. This whole illusion that you're a part of this team. If you're in that stadium, I'm a part of that team. Look, I'm wearing the jersey. I'm wearing the hat that I paid two hundred dollars for. You know, look, I'm a part of that team, and you're not. No, not at all. Even the, there was even a protester, maybe like three weeks or after mm. we did our thing. Mm. Yeah. He jumped and I forgot what was his cause, but he was a straight fan. No, Dodger jersey, Dodger hat, Dodger shoes, Dodger everything. And he jumped and they beat the shit out of that guy. Oh, <laughs> you know and then she like, was alone. Like, at least we had like three people. So yeah. they kind of got divided. But one person, um, you know, it's too much. But what, what I want to add is a lot of the people who have been very judgmental on what we did and they're thinking like oh she did it to herself and they they did it to themselves they're thinking in the colonial terms of breaking laws and rules however we live on a legal invasion and that's really important to understand um, after the geneva convention on on genocide and crimes against humanity it it, it is declared under international law that colonialism is a crime. So therefore we live under invasion. These laws really have no effect. They, they should not have any effect. That's where reclaiming our identity and sovereignty is so important because once you take a hold of that and you know who you are and the power of your identity, their laws really cannot limit what you do anymore. And, and, and for all those out there that are saying like, what does one have to do with the other? And, you know, and let me just kind of put the connection in perspective. You know, we went we went in there to do a peaceful protest just to inform and to get people's attention. You know what I'm saying? Three three of our of, of our activists, you know, walked out being hurt. You know what I'm saying? One was an underage kid that I witnessed as a father getting his head slammed into the ground three or four times after the fact. You know what I'm saying? Um, a woman being being almost got got her whole face fractured. You know what I'm saying? And another um, individual, brown man, you know, put in a legal chokehold. And as he was being escorted, there was a white officer squeezing his testicles and torturing his testicles as he was being escorted into the holding tanks. Wow. You know what I'm saying? This is some slave driver well, stuff, bro. You know, like, like, who do you... <laughs> you know, they're the violent. From what I know... This is crazy, um, bro. <laughs> from what I heard, the majority of, like, these security guards that are... That close to the field are like off duty. Yeah, they're all LAPD. Yeah, yes. LAPD is all over that stadium. Yep. I, I'm not too. I'm not too surprised to the violence because, right. I mean, if you take it back to slave times, if you're a runaway slave or a disorderly slave, they didn't pat you on the back and then go, "Hey, bro, let's let's talk, bro." Let's, this is you know this is this is out of control they're gonna fucking beat the shit out of you right and yeah. watch everyone else look at as an example as an example so that you never ever you know you're a 10 year old kid going oh i'm never gonna do that you know yeah. and i'm never gonna run away from the plantation 
I'm never going to question my master. They're going to hurt you in the testicles. Yeah. They're going to grab you and, <laughs> no, and, literally, and, literally. and murder you. So the, 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 the surprise that's of crazy. that isn't, that's just one move, right? The Dodgers coming to Los Angeles is one move. The second move was to criminalize all the Mexican families or indigenous families that lived here, right? And that's how we have a gang culture. That's how we have, you know, growing up in in my in my time in in East Los Angeles where I had a brother tell me I'm on vacation. What are you talking about you're on vacation? Yeah, I'm out of jail. I'm gonna go back in a few months though. What do you mean to go back in a few months? Well, they'll catch me eventually. <laughs> I'm on vacation. And that was his like he was literally in that world and, that and he was on vacation when he was out in the real world. And that's nothing we got to understand that up on that hill some of the original organization of what they call gangs but back then there were communities that were organizing to protect themselves against military and against police that would police. come out of nowhere and beat them down and rape the women and do all this stuff that's where they were gathered so, so la loma bishop and palo verde had three varios like their soldiers to protect to protect you know what i'm saying yeah, then back from in the, the white day, people coming in they had to do that. when they displaced them all those brothers and sisters discussing into the penitentiary system you know mm -hmm. what i'm saying and mm -hmm. like forgot it like well, wiped out i have i have a guest coming soon on this in this season that's gonna really he did his phd on on um, prison culture he did a thesis uh, a phd on prison culture and he's gonna break down exactly what the plan was who they hired to implement this because they i, I know that. he gave me he gave me a little bit of of information where he said that they outsourced the the police officers during that time from like racist states and they were promising them houses bonuses you know pretty typical. higher rank higher ranking you know you don't come in as a private but you come in as a captain and then the prison culture starts because they start arresting everybody for anything. Somebody could be drinking across the street and you're a little kid over there. They're going to go, oh, you were drinking. Come over here. You're going to juvie, you know, and they would round people up. And if you look at the, the pictures of the 1940s, look at the police line. There are 10 year olds in that line. There are 15 year olds in that line. And they treated them as if they were cockroaches and rats and, and then something that we don't realize those images from the 40s guess where they were from they were from on top of that hill there you go because back in those days we weren't allowed to rent buy or move or live anywhere but that hill as yep. as, as chicano mexicans so and it was our little private reservation <laughs> we were stuck yes. there no for real they wouldn't yeah. let us yeah. go That's anywhere true. else yeah. it wasn't until after the displacement that we were able to go into east Los and all these project um um things were built and stuff like that and they started right that's why you have maravilla right. projects that's exactly. why you had um what are the other projects around there maravilla and what was the one that just tore down Aliso Village. Aliso Village. And that's one thing. Like, if you're really from Los, if you really want to represent Los on some Sudanian shit, on some, like, I'm from here, I'm from Los, then how are you not going to care that the original people from Los Angeles, the original Chicanos, the original organized, quote-unquote, gangs that started all that... Came from that place. Came from that place and got hurt and got beat down. And you're over here, like, on the enemy. You're on the enemigas bandwagon wearing their hat flying their colors you know what i'm saying not caring about those that and, came before and, you and, and this is why our guest coming up is so important in all this because not only she's fully involved 
the movement, the message, and just informing the public. But w- what really caught my attention, uh, honestly, I'm into branding. I- I'm into like, you know, when things catch your eye. And I was so impressed with the Displacers t-shirt and just the whole look. Mm. Like, it, it, I-, I couldn't forget it. Very well made. Very well made. Yeah. Right? Very intelligent. And uh, we're going to have Ron right now, hopefully. Um, hopefully everyone's ready. We're going to go ahead and transition. So any last words before we have Melissa on? Um, no, just that, you know, the whole reason why we did all this, the reason why people ran, the reason, um, you know, was to really fly that big banner, that Not Chavez Ravine, to get it um, global attention. And we did it right off the back when it was dropped. After the action, we were getting... Hits from everywhere, Germany, Japan, Taiwan, China, um, France, you know what I'm saying? All over the United States. We knew what we were doing. We did it with purpose. Every runner, every runner that had their banner, their main mission was to open up that banner and show one of the neighborhoods, regardless of what happened, whether they were ever going to get far, whether they were going to knock down. Their main mission was to open up that banner. And, and the main, main, main mission was to drop that 25-foot you know what I'm saying? 13 pounds. You know what I'm saying? 13 pounds. Mm-hmm. Banner. You know what I'm saying? I mean, to get that motherfucker in. You know what I'm saying? We got it into police, security. We got it into everybody. So we made these guys look really stupid. They got really angry. <laughs> yes. At the fact that we were able to do that. And we dropped that big ass banner that was <laughs> calculated to the precise size without even us knowing the length. It almost hit one guy right on top of the head. We knew that that's where we wanted it. And we knew that... The, the the fans themselves were going to be the ones to put out the news. We knew that as soon as that yep. thing dropped, they were going to start taking pictures of it. They were going to show it on their social media. And we knew that they were going to be the ones to make it go viral. And just like we planned it, that's how it happened. That's you know? cool. Wow. That's cool. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and so that's a good like cause that. to do that because <laughs> you have to remember those, that the, the history of the Dodgers isn't just about, you know, them winning championships. You know, there's a, there's a brutal history to the takeover of Los Angeles from indigenous um, hearts and minds. And this was a very sacred place from what I hear from people that, you know, that I've gotten to meet. There was a very sacred tree here, you know, so that all the natives would come and visit. This is a magical place. So the the aggression about getting it and, and controlling it doesn't surprise me. I mean, there's even Hopi's tales about underground <clears throat> Things underneath the city and stuff. Yes. Oh, right. You know, yes. we can't forget. We can't forget that if we're down for Los Angeles, that we got to be down for the California natives. We got to be down for the quote unquote Garabilinos, Keech Nation. And we got to, you know, Yagna. Yagna is where it's at. If you want to represent LA, that area of LA, that's Yagna. Magna was up on that hill. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and people, descendants of that Keech nation were also up on that hill. They were part of those three communities. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? So it's just all just tied in. You know what I'm saying? Let's go ahead and get Melissa on. Let's get it, man, because they got the bread and butter, bro. Let's do it. Thanks. So we're going to transition guests here, and we're going to have some. So we're going to have DJ Warlock 1 spinning on the ones and twos for this quick transition. Who's coming up next, Mono? What's the name of the dude? What's the name of the, the gentleman? Oh, Vincent. Vincent. Okay. 
Chente? All right, Chente. No, there it is. There it is. Very special guest in the building. Shout out to Jack. Shout out to Yvette. Um, Melissa, can you go ahead and put the earphones on and do me a huge favor? Talk as close to the mic as possible, guys. Thank you for Thank jumping you. on our show. Thank you for having me. It's 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 such an honor. Like you know, I, I had a conversation with Zero not not too long ago prior to this uh, this episode, and I just have nothing but respect for you for what you represent and what you're a part of. Thank you very much. Go ahead and, and uh, g- give us your introduction. Um, my name is Melissa Rechiga. Um, I'm a living descendant of the three uh, wrongfully and violently displaced communities of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. Mm. Um, I'm also one of the founding members of Buried Under the Blue, which was created to preserve and bring awareness and um, ultimately uh, gain accountability um, from the Dodgers Corporation and the city of Los Angeles for what they did to our families in the three communities. Wow. And hopefully, you know, to get some reparations and some things that will be beneficial to the community. Yeah. I I mean, we all hope for that, but you know how greedy they are and how much, you know, they they feel like, you know how they work? They work with lawyers. They go, oh, you don't have a, a lawyer that can beat my lawyer? Screw you. You know, that's the way they work. That's colonialism, right? That's the way they ran in Europe and they brought it here. That's absolutely right. That's the I'm sorry. That's that's the truth. That's the way they're gonna they're gonna do it. But with our collective um, unity and our good hearts, sometimes they can't fight with lawyers, right? Because that's when intention takes over, and when intention takes over, then communities outside of your own community. In other words, you're not this this crying complainer. When you got white people involved, when you got black people involved, when you got Asians involved, when you go, hey you did something bad and you need to pay for it then that's the global unity that we all we all were really good at you know as being indigenous people of this land we were very communal people we knew how to relate to others without that wisdom we wouldn't have made the mexica the tonal the tonal machio right the aztec stone so but with that being said your work is very valued and honored and thank you for being here Thank you very both much for you, having both us. Both of you and and Jag and Yvette, thanks for coming on and and sharing your story about um, a statement made by some Angelinos who didn't agree with the displacement of these communities. So, you want to talk something? Yeah, no, just just to fill it in, just a little bit of the history of our three communities. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what people forget about or don't know the, a lot of the history of them is to understand their value, how independent they were mm. from the city. Because they were discriminated against, they didn't have a lot of resources, right? Like LAPD. Our communities were relevant then. They're more relevant today in the discussions of how do we fix policing? And we often ask our grandparents, right? How did you guys deal with the issues when LAPD wasn't involved in your community? And they were simply, you just knock, go talk to the mom, the dad and settle it and in some ways those are the early signs of how we should police ourselves even today without LAPD 
and a very good example of, of community policing. Right. Um, but we also look at their sustainability, and we hear that word a lot in the city right now. Um, the city has this move on how to make communities sustainable, self-efficient, more effective. The communities of Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop were ahead of their game. They farmed, they raised their own food, they policed themselves, no resources. They were isolated totally, totally from the city's aspect of what a city was. They were, so, they were so far advanced that me as an elected official and I sit on city planning, right, on our neighborhood council system, it's sad to often see how the city is trying to create something that our people were living thousands of years ago mm. and to criminalize them for it and take their lands away. Right. So I think when we look at those types of, of communities, it's a good example of how valuable and how far advanced our people are, all our people. All our people around the nation have been on this sustainable plan, uh, not to abuse Mother Earth. Mm. You know, take what you use, what you're going to need, and don't overabuse it. And it, it it just shows that with unity, just like you were saying, um, that we need to learn these things because they're important. They're the tales of L.A., stories that are not heard. Mm. Um, the reasons why we see, like, uh, the word Chavez Ravine, right? It's an erasure word. Um, you don't hear Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop because you would never find it in a city document. Yeah, I never yeah. heard of those three communities. I, I've, I've known as the place called Chavez Ravine. You know, I thought that's what it was called or whatever. Yeah. But that was my ignorance, you know, in the subject. And I'm glad that you're here to set the record straight because you're right. You know, these are important historical moments in our history here in Los Angeles. And they can't be erased. Exactly. You know, and I'm so glad you're here to share this story with us. Oh, yeah. And I think it's, it's just like Yvette was saying, it was a good branding tool when we saw the Dodgers use it. If you go back in the history and you look at it, it's almost like people ask the question, what happened before the Dodgers? And, and that's what a lot of Angelinos and, you know, indigenous people that participate in the game don't ask themselves. Mm. I often tell them, remember, the sport was designed to entertain white people. Mm -hmm. The population prior to Dodger Stadium was here was because it, the market was, we need white people. White people did not want to live here after a certain time. And that's when you read history of white flight. So O'Malley had to say, oh God, you know, we lost our biggest um, uh, population that was going to fund our money, pay all this stuff in 62. Um, he comes up into the 70s. And the only reason why Fernando was ever admitted in was because they had to capture the Latinos that were coming in, all the infill. So we had Italians, we had Blacks, Jewish, predominantly Mexicans that came into the area. And I think that's a, that's a big um, piece of history that people really need to understand. You're sitting in those stands for one reason, because you were a marketing gimmick for them. Money, green. Mm. You love the Dodgers, but the Dodgers don't love you. They mm. love your brown dollars that you spend at the stadium. You wake up one day and you're gonna realize you're next to the colonizers. You love the colonizers. Mm. And I think that's something that when we approach them and, and say, look, it's not about not going to the game, but it's about holding them accountable. You know, we grew up, well, I grew up with my grandparents telling them, and it wasn't the players, and I never understood why. I thought we just blamed the whole system, right? He says, the, the players are, are as abused as we were. They may be making millions, but the corporations are making billions off of them. And in a lot of ways, they're slaves to the system which was, you know, tragic hearing that as a kid, you know, because my story with my dad coming from Mexico, 
was kind of like um, he gets here. My dad's like, we're going to go to a Dodger game. Not knowing my grandparents were thrown violently out of uh, Palo Verde. Mm. So when I came back from the game, we happened to live in the same, we had a house in the front and the back. My grandparents lived in the back. My dad, my grandfather met, they saw me with my Fernando jacket, and that was the end of it. It was so serious that my, my, grand, my grandfather never talked to my father for almost 27 years, just for that one incident. Yeah. And wow. I think those stories are real deep in, in, in how the conflict has lasted since then till now. Mm. Wow, that's deep, right, Zero? Wow, yeah, no, to... to to, to be a kid not knowing, right? You, I'm sure you didn't know no. the story of it. And you're like, that's what I'm saying. Like, they catch us in this youthful state where, where you know, you're vulnerable as a child. Because you're looking at everybody else who's older than you, jumping up and down and being a part of this, you know, ridiculous game that means nothing to you and costs so much. Right? So, Melissa, I, I'm dying to hear it from you, like... What's your opinion on just the whole Dodgers organization? Just as in which? Um, no, just as a general thing. Like I was never into sports. Were you? No, no. I was athletic and I enjoyed like the physical aspect of it. But as competing, no, it wasn't my thing. And I don't know. For me, I played freshman high school football, and this is not. I'm not trying to tell anyone not to do sports because I don't know. I guess you could work out. You're kind of part of a team. But the reason why I hated sports, because my damn teammates were just as lackluster as me. So if they weren't trying to protect me, I was going to get hurt because the opponents were out there to hurt me. And I was taught by my coaches to hurt my opponents. So right off the bat, I thought that was a red flag. (laughs) (laughs) I'm saying good one, right? Good and then when flag. your teammates are scared to get hurt, then how do you expect to put your body at jeopardy? Yeah. You know? So, Melissa, um, I have to say, the t-shirt you're wearing, it's such an iconic t-shirt. It's one of the best t-shirts I've ever seen in my life. And let me know where I could order one, where I could buy one, because I want to support anyone that's watching this podcast. Let's go ahead and cop these shirts. Like, give us a background on the t-shirt. Well, um, I'd like to give a shout out to the artist, which is Olin, and his sister, um, Linda. They have a studio called uh, Immortal Photos. And so um, one time he had reached out to me and we were talking about the history. And I had kept using the word um, displacers to like diss the Dodgers. And, uh, you know, kind of like that's an L.A. thing, right? You always find a way to diss. Like if you're from a gang, you try to find another way to like diss them. So he really... um, liked the ideal and so we went a little bit further and I told him you know um, I'm not an artist but if I was the way that I would envision it would be in the same script as the Dodgers and with the house instead of the baseball and we talked about it and um, he was able to bring it to life and so I was really grateful and it was um, early when I had moved back from the Bay Area and the Dodgers were going to the World Series and so I was able to release it at that time Um, so I feel like uh, if you really look at the history of Buried Under the Blue and start seeing the things that we were doing that maybe um, a lot of people weren't aware of, it was very significant in the time that we released it. You know, and it's, it's kind of developed over time. Zero, isn't it a great way of just awareness as a whole? Because that's the whole point, right, Zero, of, of, of the work. Yeah. Well, I mean, to tell the true history of, of things because you get wrapped up in just 
in the now, right? Oh, well, that happened a long time ago. I don't need to worry about that. And everybody has a house now, right? You know, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be a crybaby, you know? And what I want to, what I want to point out is that they didn't just knock on your door and say, Hey, you know what? Can you please leave? They went in there and terrifying women and children, old ladies, it was a violent takeover. It was brutal and there's no way to do but then you know since it's so far away from our generation right you know and we won a couple of championships since then right you know we got to forgive them for that it's just really my job here on on la natives is to look at the mac the, the micro and the macro right and when i saw the dodgers story come to los angeles i didn't just see the baseball team i saw the rich owners that knew the owner of the baseball team and they're probably talking about how they're going to buy up Los Angeles and Southern California and Orange County and all these racist people come as landowners, right? Like you said, colonial, you know, whatever you want. Now they call them investors. Right? <laughs> now these colonizers are called investors now, right? But that same investor will use colonial tactics to get people out of his property. I'll give you a prime example that just happened. South Central Farm. South Central Farm was a lot that nobody used and nobody gave a shit about until people started using it and growing fruit and selling fruit and trading fruit and actually using the land. Then the, the white goes, wait a minute, I own that land. Why are they there? Get him out of there. And that investor, right? I got investors here. They're just colonizers. So that's the same thing that the Dodgers did. They're the same thing except they come with different names right yeah. and and that's the macro vision of it is to be able to take a step back and know that that's those are the same tactics that keep us poor with no voice and into a prison culture exactly that's just my opinion you no, know i mean if you look at like i often tell people if you really want to look at racism it's in front of us you have something called the city charter and the city charter has policies like intimate domain mm. Most of their policies are rooted in racism. So when we participate in public meetings or in a public process, we're participating in our own erasures. Yes. None I of those policies that. can put us into play, right? And mm -hmm. the only way to change those policies is to do what? Is to be elected and change them. Mm -hmm. And that's something that our people resist because of the abuser, right? I often tell people it's hard to get, you know, uh, Mexicans into politics because I approach them and say, hey, let's get together. There's more of us than there is of them. And we often refer it almost like um, like a battered women syndrome, is that we're taking them back to the system that beat them, abused them, and we're telling them they won't do it again. Mm. And they do it again. And again. And, and then they resist. <laughs> yeah, and it builds this resistance against the politics of it. And that's the same thing like when we look at those policies, how they took over intimate domain in, in Dodger Stadium. You went in there. Intimate domain is supposed to be for the purpose of the public. So when we look at it from that aspect, how did the Dodgers get it? And this is part of the deal on why the Dodgers and the city have stood quiet. Well, I was told that it was something to do with uh, trying to build more affordable public housing, right? Exactly. So that was the whole front, right? Well, yeah, like how currently we're in a housing crisis, right? So 60 years we've been in a housing crisis. I mean, come on. You know, and then they didn't build the housing. 
and we got the stadium and like Vince was saying, eminent domain is a law that's used to, to um, take land and for public use, for public good, but a private corporation benefited from it. So how is that housing? And yet we're still in the same conditions because the same laws that existed then exist now on the books. So we're going to continue to have the same housing crisis. It's perpetuating. Right. Only worse, larger, and faster to all of your guys' communities. I'm, I'm glad you used that word perpetuating because when white supremacy came to this land, the job of what they had to do was to put the children and the people that lived on this land into perpetual slavery. So we can't go, just like the brother says, I've had this discussion with my sweat leader because he always had a, a vision of, of saying we can change it from the inside, right? But you can't. It's like going into the castle or going into Roman, Roman uh, uh, a Senate, a Roman Senate going, I'm going to change this when everybody's in agreement about being shysty, not caring about people. And that's what I mean when the Dodgers moved here. It wasn't just one owner who goes to those games. Very rich people go and they sit in the box office and they talk business with other people. That's what came to Los Angeles with the Dodgers. It wasn't just a team that played on a field. It was in colonials, investors who said, hey, you could stay in my Malibu mansion and check out this hill over here. It's, there's some people there, but we can get rid of those guys and you know, blah, 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 and this and that. And now you have a lot of East Coast money, a lot of East Coast um, landowners here right now, right? People that go, yeah. hey, man, I don't want to pay a million dollars for an apartment. I could pay a million dollars for this big old lot in East L.A., you know, Boyle Heights, in, in Lincoln Heights, you know. There are a lot of these people that are buying these houses at a million dollars and up are people from the East Coast, are people from New York. Exactly. No, no, exactly. And I think we see it too often. You know, growing up in Echo Park, when we, we started monitoring in 2013, the, it's the largest migration of Mexican-Americans outside of the state of California. Okay, Hollywood is where a lot of the epicenter was when it started um, with Jackie Goldberg in office and doing these land policies and rents. And same thing, the key words that we ask a lot of people to look at that would trigger Someone that's aware of, this, of these words or the process of change is revitalization. Mm. Um, re, uh, it's revitalization, rebuild, and readaptive reuse. Those are the, the legal terms that they use when they're going to redo a community as if we ask for them to come into our communities, just like Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. Right. Everyone that was there never wanted to leave. Yeah. But the scare tactics that they used them was exactly you're poor, your housing's no good, so it's either you take the money or we condemn your house. That's the power that the city had at that time. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing, the same tactics they use today in gentrification of Boyle Heights, Highland Park, and Echo Park. If you don't sell and you were a, a homeowner and you were of Mexican descent or any descent that was brown, um, you're basically wrong and you need to give that investment up mm -hmm. or else you're not going to benefit anything. And in Echo Park, we own property there, right? So my dad had the concept that nosotros tenemos casa. We have house. We don't got to worry. You know, the renters are the ones that are going to get kicked out. He later found out that you could stay there and you can have a million, two million dollar home. 
And the problem was your community was taken from you and the community that was now adapted in hated you. You didn't have that community. So unless, unless you respected it, like my grandfather was the one who said, and I think he put it the best about the three communities. We were one giant rancho with one giant familia. Mm. And he had it right because they value community. Most of our people in Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop own more than one property in a time where the city didn't allow it. And so they posed a huge threat of generational wealth. That's what they were building. And community, and it wasn't about our people saying, I have a house, two houses, and I'm going to leave, rent them, and go to a better place. They couldn't. But they valued that community and stood in their community while building that wealth, circulating that dollar, having their own store to circulate right back in that community and keep it alive. So, you know, the stuff that we get into real deep with our communities is to see how those three communities, if that model was had been left at that time, the amount of generational wealth that would have been in today's generation with our families. Right. And that's what's important to look at because that, that's what they're trying to tell us in history books is that you guys were drunks, um, Indians, and you did nothing good. Mm -hmm. But here we are in these three Amen. communities and we have everything that they're saying we don't. And because we believed in the American dream, we, se we sent some of our family members over to Vietnam, World War II, and we lost many. 70% of them didn't come back. They paid the highest price to give the, to give the life of their sons or daughters, only to come back in 58 and then face it in 59 when they were evicted from their houses. Discriminated still. Yeah. So they fought overseas for their rights, and then they had to come back home to fight again. Which was tragic. I it's kind of like the same thing that happens with uh, nowadays when you're an undocumented individual and you join the army, you go and do your tour and come back and get booted out of the <laughs> get, get exactly. booted out of the country. No, 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 it is, it is. It's it's the same racism. It, but then again, remember we have to remember that the the doctrine of discovery had the function of putting us into a perpetual slavery, right? The only thing we had to combat that was community, mm -hmm. was our wisdom of plants and our ability to heal ourselves because we didn't have the, the money to go to doctors and, and, you know, all these things that, that we, but, but we didn't really want to because we knew how to take, we care, knew of how to take care of ourselves. Yeah. If we were hungry, we grew food like, hey, I'm going to grow some food and share it because I know how to grow food. I grow a lot of it and that person needs some and, and that's what the community is. Getting back to the subject of affecting a system that we have been talking about has been racist from the start, has been white supremacist from the start. What are what are our chances in in changing that? Right? Is it yeah. is it is it to go into a city council and go, okay, well, I'm the only city councilman who believes in my people, but everybody else is getting bribes and kickbacks from here and there. No, I, I think, you know, when you look at the history of it, the one thing I've always told people, like we've, we've had something like neighborhood councils that are throughout the city, and we've had groups set up and say, look, you can't go in as an individual. That's not how the colonial system works. Mm. You have to go in in what they call a majority, mm. which is 51% of the board. So now we're learning how to even take over corporate boards, right? Mm. You know, we looked at the Wolf of Wall Street. This is exactly what we're talking about. Mm. Change can only be made if you have 51%. If you go in as one or two, you're really not going to make too much change. You're going to be able to make a statement, but you won't make change. And people always say, but how are we going to get in there? We don't have enough people. That's bullcrap. California right now, it's almost 80% 
Mexican. Mm. We got to think about that. Mm-hmm. California is the most influential state. If you ever get into politics and you listen to what, what the, the, the saying that they have for it is, wherever California goes, so goes the nation. We influence law. We influence markets. Everything. It is one of the most powerful states that we have, and yet it's under control right now of the minority, which mm-hmm. is mostly whites. Mm-hmm. If that was to break open in an election, and I'll give you an example, uh, May Day, when Piolin and Cucuy de la Mañana came on and they said 187, that was not organized. But if anybody remembers the amount of people and the shock that it sent up to Sacramento, when you had almost over a million and a half Mexicans and, and other nations were there on one issue of immigration and it was peaceful, that same year we had an election with Mayor Garcetti, 120,000 people showed up to the election. We had a million and a half people show up and no election, no, no um, direction to push them into, to say, look, no more protests. You just got to go home and register, register mom, dad, and the family, and then go knock on the door of 10 to 20 people in your neighborhood and register them. And then wait for a simple flyer to come out, and this is the slate. Now, people say once they're in, what happens, right? What if they go corrupt? There's something called a recall. The way you put them in is the way you take them out. That is the power that we have because people look at democracy as a white colonial mindset. Democracy is indigenous by right. The colonizer came from a European country, which was all a monarchy. It knew nothing about what we have today. And when you actually look at the, the, the contributions of the Iroquois Indian, you look at the Constitution and how it's written, how the Iroquois influenced probably about a good 70 to 80 percent of the Constitution of today. That's why we often tell them democracy is indigenous by right. The European had no system of being able to disperse the power. But now that it's here, what you do here in the public when they're protesting is the 1 percent cannot beat the 99 percent. That is the first indicator that you are living in a monarchy now. That the, the illusion of a democracy is there, but the people unconsciously are repeating, you know, it's a monarchy. 1% versus 99. You so, know what, Zero, you always talk about this. And you know what, this is why this show is so important, because we have a packed house right now, Zero. There's a lot of people tuning in, and I'm just so happy that people are listening to this, Zero. It, it's, it's it, you know, I've had this conversation with individuals for a long time because I've been, I've been doing this for 20 years, right? You know, fighting the system or finding my identity or, you know, reclaiming who I am. But before I go there, I want to ask the sister, you know, you've been really quiet and we need to hear your voice. I want you to say something like, where, where do you feel where we're, where we're taking this conversation and, and, you know, your voice is very important. You're the, you're the protectors of our community and no, um, but at the same time, there's many things, and that's why I had said when I originally had talked to your co-host right here that I didn't believe that one, you know, session of this would be enough yeah. or sufficient. Well, it's starting to, you know, with <laughs> you know, brother right here, he has, the, he has all the knowledge, and we got the spirit from from our sister. Of course not. We'll probably have to. You know, we'll probably be. You'll probably be guests regularly. Um, but I just want to hear what... Yeah, you know, and I just wanted to be respectful and kind of let the conversation flow in, in, in whichever way it needed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, as well, some of the other um, runners, mm-hmm. you know, weren't able to make it. So, you know, um, it's important. There's a lot of moving pieces, you know, yeah. from activism to organizing to, to talking about gentrification, to mm-hmm. talking about displacement, prison, what does inherited trauma look like? You right. know, there's so many things, um, even about the quiche, right? Right. 
So that's why I said I don't know. Um, I didn't think that it would be sufficient on right. sitting. So mm-hmm. you know, I'm just kind of. Well, I'm, it, I'm sure. You know? I'm sure. You know, I would love to bring you guys back, especially you, brother. When I bring my PhD friend to talk about what their um, tactic was to deal with all of the kids that were coming from yeah. these nomas, right? Because. You know, Mexican families are huge. <laughs> They're like, no, they are. Hey, they turned around. They probably went, "What the hell?" There's all kinds of these. Where they're all running around everywhere. We got to do something about this, you know. And then the prison culture starts to happen, where juvenile halls get built and prisons get built, and now we're in um, uh, a private prison kind of system now. And look, remember when the doctrine of this discovery came? They said those that did not follow Christ were to be put into perpetual slavery. And that's what we've been dealing with for 500 years. The one thing they didn't count on is our wisdom, our connection with Mother Earth, and our ability to come together. Is it through the colonial system? I'm going to say no. Because there's always going to be somebody higher than them. It's kind of like asking a military person to break order. Mm -hmm. Right? Because... They are 1%, but there are 1% that hold lots of money, right? And if you, it's kind of like these artists, these really famous artists like Kanye West, he's like, I could change your life. How does he do that? By giving you $5 million, that's gonna change somebody's life dramatically. Yeah. So this is what we're dealing with, is these individuals who have extraordinary amounts of money. They're very few, but they control these things. Personally, what I think beats everything is the community's intention and whichever direction the community decides, which is rooted in what you're you're saying, which is the Iroquois um, democracy system. But we're missing. There's a big gap between understanding what that is for us and what we've been living through 500 years. And, and I think it's just like Melissa says is. There's so many topics here, and like you're getting into now where education is, and we understand how our kids are not educated. You know, civics is one of the things that should have been taught to everybody and still continue in a system built in democracy. Now, that was stripped from a lot of people. Why? Why don't our people understand that? Okay, the same reason why our history is stripped from us now is because it leaves us in limbo with no direction. Mm. Um, Which is, it explains the protest that we had, and... We're like, where do we go? <laughs> exactly. And you stay stuck. And at the same time, like my mentor always told me, who are you? So that bothered me throughout the years. I'm Vincent from the neighborhood. What the hell's wrong with you? I wanted to kill her sometimes. <laughs> you know, she's 93 now. I've known her since I was 14 years old. And she was a, a sitting congresswoman, right? And I used to tell her, I go, hey, you know, Juanita, stop saying this shit, you know, because I know who the hell I am. And she said, you don't know who the hell you are? So later down the years, like when I was 25 years old, I started to ask myself, you don't know who you are. You mm. don't know where you're going. Mm. And those were the first things that came out of her. She goes, you had no clue and you wasted all that time. Mm. She goes, and you got to understand two things about yourself. In this journey, when you start to find the truth, you're going to stay alone. Mm. And that's when you know you're going in the right direction. The sheep will follow and sheep only follow because they want to assimilate. They want to belong because they don't have an identity. Mm-hmm. They think they do, but they don't. And a lot of times I found myself that in politics. You know, when I went in and I ran and I did uh, a commission for the Department of Fish and Games, I, you know, we even took over the Sierra Club, one of the widest groups that were out there in the sense of saying, 
it's not about us conquering you. It's about taking back to give a resource back to our people to start educating that you can be an environmentalist if you're brown. Mm. You can be a politician without being corrupt if you're brown. Mm -hmm. And so it was a redefining of what these systems that have abused us now become systems of, systems of empowerment. So here's my take, though, is that I feel like when we do stuff like that, it's like a Stockholm syndrome. In some where, ways it is, yeah. Where you're like in love, not in love with the captor or the prison or the or the colonizer, right? So that's what, that's what I don't know. You, you have no, well, I think for me, it's not about assimilating, it's infiltrating. Mm. Because when you sit in those seats, you're, you have the power, you have mm -hmm. a budget, you have the ability to do things, to mm -hmm. make the call, right? To call the shot. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we were outside, we're protesting, we're begging them to make that decision on behalf of us, the best decision. Mm -hmm. Whereas why would I outside yell for you to do what I could do for myself if I just kick you out of your seat and take mm -hmm. it from you? So I think for me, it's a part of infiltrating the system, mm -hmm. not a matter of assimilating. So when I look at it like that, and then when I understand that it's also the framework is inherently indigenous, and it is my duty, it is my responsibility to take it out of the colonizer's hands because they perverted it and use it now to protect my people because they've been whipping us, they've been beating us over the head with it for me to take the stick and now whip them back with it. Right. It's our duty. Here, here's where I have a problem, though, is that we all know that the Constitution of the United States describes us as savage, mm -hmm. wild savage. So then if we're wild savage and we're going, but wait, I'm part of the Constitution. Yeah, you're right. You're the wild savage. You'll always be that. That's where I have a problem. What, okay, right? sometimes I act so, wild. <laughs> and and I believe it. you, and it's cool <laughs> to be that. For me, I love the title. Think, think of one thing that, that would erase that in the last 20 years. When an elected official that's white comes for his votes, where does he come to? Yeah, he has to come to California and he has to come to the Latino vote. And you have always ruled the political party. Mm -hmm. The problem is, is that we don't understand it because it, it has been drilled into us that we are the savage. Just because it's written on paper does not mean that we are savages. It's when we become aware and detach ourselves from the narrative of the colonizer. Mm. The biggest fear they have is that we would wake up one day and that we would use the system, the Constitution. It can only do one of two things. They can only open the door and let us in through the rightful right, or we would have another civil war. That's mm -hmm. what it comes down to with them. Mm -hmm. wow. And they have That's books. Deep. Yeah, they have books out there. And I'm not going to, I don't even want to say the title because I don't want anybody to go buy it and then give them any money. But they did write one called The Browning of America for a reason. Mm. The fear, both on the Republican and the Democrat side, because when you look at both parties, both parties have tortured the Mexican, indigenous, Absolutely. however they identify. Absolutely. And they do that because we're not organized. That's our key thing. We're not organized. They can separate us by a simple $10,000 donation here, a little money sprinkled here, and people go in that direction. What, what we don't have is a party, and we have history, like what La Raza Unida, like I talked to I my grandfather. About, I, was about, I was just about to mention that, yeah. Yeah, and we don't talk about people in history like Reyes Lopez de Gerina. Mm -hmm. Nobody knows Corky, about him. You know? Corky Gonzalez. But, but if you look at Reyes, Reyes was the only person, and, and I learned this because I used to talk to my, grand, my grandfather when we were talking about Palo Verde and everything, and he says, I only, I only believed in, in uh, Reyes Lopez de Gerina because of the, the, the strategy he used. He went, he got elected in the office, one of the first people to ever run 
and get the 13 seats in Tierra Maria. Now, what was the problem? He won. They weren't educated. They didn't understand the, the, the colonizer system on how to spend the money and what legislation was and how to pass it. Mm. Knew nothing. That frustrated him. What happens? He gets out, goes crazy like most of us do, and we get into politics, and now we want to tear him apart. And he goes to City Hall and shoots it up. And it even speaks a little bit about even the colonizer history at that time that they, they didn't oppress everybody. He only got four or five years in prison for shooting up. If we did that today, we'd be locked up for life. Mm -hmm. He comes out and he learns to be a lawyer. And the only thing he knows how to challenge is the Supreme Court system on the Tierra, the Tierra Maria land grants. Right. And the one thing he comes back when we, we brought him back down here just before he passed away, just to you know talk and get some information because he was in Mexico. Um, was what, what was the what was the whole take of your life on this? And he said, if you do not win the presidency at least four to five times and appoint the chief justices, which is our Supreme Court, we'll never get our land back. He goes, but that is that is the that is the the map to our freedom of land mm. because you are the majority now. You just don't know it, mm. and you don't look at it because the oppressor has put it in your head that you're no good but then most of the white people are running for the hills they left at least 20 years ago that we can see that they started integrating and the reasons why we know now it's even more powerful when was the last time we started seeing land back or indigenous issues come up that were passing like crazy and that is also part of the assimilation how do we get this indigenous monster that's out there that has grown they have assimilated to their own culture you have to hijack and it's the reasons why we see those patterns form in everything of ours, of capturing the narrative of what the people believe as a whole in the city. The reasons why we don't use Chavez Ravine, it perpetuates the erasure of that. Mm. And we're gonna continue to see that more in history as even our stance was buried under the blue. When I was researching it, I had to say, hold on, we're not the actual owners of the land. We may be indigenous, but the Quiche are the owners of the land just through history and documentation. Mm -hmm. And so what right does that give me to ask for the land back when it's not even, we're not the legal heirs? And to be honest, we don't even know if we could be part of the key, right? But those are how deep the discussions we had over the years to really look at it because we believe in the organization that we have to set it right. These policies of, you know, if you look at Bruce's Beach, it was, it was promoted as indigenous land back. But the Bruce's family is not indigenous to the land. That is Quiche territory. See, that's already a political narrative to feed into the ideas that somehow government is now more sympathetic to the indigenous model and what they're pushing by acknowledgement. To me, though, any kind of like reference to a map or reference to documents that say territory property any of those things are still colonial mm -hmm. my personal belief and this is just my prayer type right this is my conversation with the fire me one-to-one -one, sovereign the universe and me i understood that we're under roman rule we follow a roman calendar we're trying to follow roman law right of a criminal justice system that means the criminals are in charge of justice in this system right mm -hmm. so i felt the most powerful thing we can do as a community and i'm just sharing with you 
No, no, no. Is to go back to our ancient stone, the Tonam La Shield. It was built for a reason. That reason has a 260-day calendar. Recently just came to me, Masatim did a workshop. I think the more we immerse ourselves in our indigenous teachings and let go of Roman superiority, then we can get roots to challenge in our own way, in our sovereign way, with our own leaders. Because you're a very intelligent person. You know, you're, you're, you're well, I could tell you're well read. You know how to organize. But we're like running up a slippery hill when we're asking the colonizer to recognize us. Why would he recognize a prisoner of war? Yeah, but in order to erase that system, you have to get into there and disrupt it. Mm. That system has been around for how long? Hundreds, 500 years, you know. So it's part of the strategy to look at their system is very weak if you do not have people that are oppressed into it. Mm. And the oppressed person is what we listen to and how we grade ourselves in life. That we're no good because we're savage. We're no good because we're Mexicans. You're no good because you grew up in Echo Park or on the east side. You know, long time ago, I started a project called the Los Tiburones Youth Fishing Program. Simple project, but it was based on, on this indigenous model to teach them how to fish. But not only fish, they would sit there for hours waiting for a fish to bite. And I would always ask them, what do you think in those hours? That's the first time they were ever inside their own minds thinking of a plot and planning on how to get a fish. Their own set, nothing that they saw on TV or we read off of a fishing magazine or anything. From that, these were kids that nobody wanted. You know, and I had learned all this system from like my grandfather telling me like in Palo Verde that the kids are the most important thing and they need to be nurtured, they need to be taught, they need to be given the opportunities. If you give them the opportunities, they're as good as anybody else's kid. Out of that group, out of what was it, almost 17 years in this project, we had seven of the, of the probably the worst kids that, that the city said we could never turn around and we're not giving them psychology or none of the Western medicine, no Ritalin, no nothing. This was just fishing, mountains, camping, one with the earth. Mm. And one, two of them come out to be state biologists and another one comes out to be a lawyer. Mm. They were at peace. They could, they could make action. They understood not to leave that system and not to get too close into it because you can't get into the colonizer system and believe that you're not going to get influenced by it. That's right. part of the journey mm. is that, like myself, I've never lost root of where I come from. If there's something that's not right that's, that's coming in front of our neighborhood council and I know that it's right, I'm going to speak up against it. I'm going to call it what it is. It's a crook. Mm-hmm. We don't see that in today's politics because they tell you to be civilized. Well, to me, from my standpoint, my upbringing, that is civilized when my, when my, when my neighborhood is being attacked. Yeah. So I'm not going to sit back and shake your hand and go, oh, thank you for doing this to us and in the name of progress. Because that already happened to generations of my families in Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop, and you screwed them. Mm-hmm. So we can't do that. But what we can do is you know, hit those preventatives to stop and block them. And there's different levels of it. That's the unfortunate part. It isn't going to take, you know, maybe one lifetime, it may take two lifetimes of investment. But we're fighting a system that has been here for hundreds of years Absolutely. that has taken power, that controls us through, controls some people. I'm not going to say all of us, but through religion, through a t-shirt, through a brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and people have to shake their minds off of that, that that's not where we come from. But how do they know that? Mm-hmm. We don't have enough institutions out there that are rooted in indigenous. I'm glad to see now that we have 
people like Mexican Excellence that does her decolonization. And I think, there, you know, there's a couple of other ones that I run out through that are starting to start this process. But that curriculum is going to be very important into the future of what you're trying to get to, right? Is to get into this indigenous mindset to get in. But that's why democracy, if we don't accept it as an indigenous right, then the colonizer, like Melissa says, has perverted it. So we're not going into something to assimilate or be part of them. What we're doing is re-bringing re that back down, taking out the negativity that they have controlled us for decades already, and insert what does an indigenous democracy look like? Mm -hmm. What does, I often tell people, what does a modern day indigenous person look like? Because our kids today are, are not aware of it, but they have phones in their hands. That too will evolve as we evolve. Right. And I think that's something as we evolve as people, I tell Melissa, I say one thing one day and tomorrow it will change for one reason. It's a reminder that we never wrote our history. We never documented. That was all colonial stuff. Mm -hmm. Like you said, with the maps and all that stuff. Right. But in order to, to get all that stuff out of our system, we have to create all that stuff for ourselves. And there has to be a centralization of education and maybe a council that needs to be formed to approve that type of education. We don't need government. They can go to regular school, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But two or three hours a week of teaching them of the of, of indigenous culture, the right, you know, growing, fishing, however, whatever the curriculum may be, is what's needed in our communities now. Right. Because it will never be acknowledged by the system. Okay, we see eco-psychology coming out that doesn't blame the person, but blames the environment. That's important too to understand. Western medicine doesn't do that. You go in and your kid's asking too many questions, pump them with Ritalin, right. turn them into a zombie. Right. You know, and that's all money at the end of the day. And these types of things I've seen throughout the years, like asking my grandfather, you know, did we, what did you guys do in Palo Verde when the kids had nothing to do? Oh, they went to the patch, and in order for them to have fun, they had to, you know, cut all of las calabazas, and then they would teach them how to make little flutes out of the branches of the, of the pumpkins. Hmm. So wow. that was all in one, teaching them to build and their imagination to come to life and, and integrate them into that system. Because my mom used to do weird stuff, and, you know, growing up, I'd be, don't, don't do that, mom, you know, because that's going to embarrass me. I don't know really how you got that <laughs> shit, man. Yeah. Uh, but I, I could understand her in, later in life that those were things that they had to do because they were taught from that point, which was important because it affected me not only modernizing myself and getting into politics with it, but also how to keep what we learned in the barrios all the way up into our neighborhoods and how to integrate into the future to make it better. Hmm. You know, and it's a slow process, but we have good examples in Elysian Valley. They took over their board. That was all brown people and they served brown issue and they mm. had money. Mm. All they had to do now was, was, you know, which is crazy because they get into, into power and you think that they're going to get corrupt. Instead, they were kind of like, this is not for me. I go, why? It's because I'm not cussing. I'm not mad. Mm. I'm like, well, shit, you're living the colonizer's life now. Mm. All you got to do is say no and yes. And then you don't got to plan shit. And, and even that's hard for them to de-escalate them down from well, the fighting one. It's, it's a different system from running what what the, the three neighborhoods. Um, sorry. I'm, Palo Verde, La Loma, and Bishop. There you go. Palo Verde, <laughs> La Loma, and Bishop. You know, those are very, um, it seemed like they they did exactly what I was trying to explain. Is that They just said, well, they don't let us in their city, so we're going to have our own little city. We're going to have our own little justice, and we're going to have our own way of of working together and that has been so far away from our communities i know 
in the early 90s growing up in East Los Angeles. It was very divisive. It's still very divisive. Um, and even when we came to light about indigenous, our, our indigeneity, it was still very divisive. You know, it wasn't like we, we learned to work together. But I, no one has the right answer. And I'm by no means am I saying that if you did a campaign that, that resulted in you being in a position of power through this colonial system, do I not believe in change coming from it? I just think there's more power, and this is just my opinion, there's more power in a culture that revolved around nature and certain energies in time. I was explaining to a kid at, at my shop, you know, at the, at the superfoods, Malala Superfoods, and I was breaking down the book that Masatsin brought to our, our attention. And I was like, dude, imagine if you followed these energies for 260 days, you would be off a colonial system and working within the energies that your great, great grandfathers put into motion. That's a powerful thing. Now, you, now let's take it to the level of city council. And we're looking at those energies and we're going, okay, wait, today is a day of reflection. Maybe we should call it off for this day. Exactly. And using those energies to really move forward the vision of our abuelos. Because Cuauhtémoc said that one day we would rise and we are it. Yeah. Because I'll tell you how. It's, it's happening in front of our face. Because this kid comes on Sunday or this young man comes on Sunday. He goes, hey, I play the ancient ball game at the park. Right? Two hours later, some other kid comes. I play the Toltec dart at City Terrace. And you just start seeing these things start popping up. And then, and, and, you know, Jack does Mexica New Year. And if we can get a system of organization within our own self, in our own community, that's where the rhythm and the power come. It needs to be a combination of those things with our ancestral wisdom in the head. That's I agree. I no, no, I agree. That's why I say, the, what does the modern day indigenous person look like? Right. He has his roots. And then he has its goals to change. Yeah. And how does that look? But it's always centered in the indigenous model. Yes. That's the crucial part for a lot of people to understand. The indigenous model, it will always be centered in. But the takeover in the sense of getting the system, it has to be done in an indigenous fashion. And, mm. th and that's the same thing. We go in and we don't, we don't go in to fight. We go in to just do what the law tells us to do, give them the right to speak, and then we vote. That's it. Mm. Go home. You got democracy. You weren't discriminated against. You may not like it, but talk to my grandfather whose land was taken away by the same decision that you made. Mm. He didn't like it. And so you must be civilized. I use the same language that they used against us. So I have a lot of people that are angry at me. I won't say their names. They're going to mm. come after me in my neighborhood <laughs> council meeting that I have tomorrow. Um, but they've often come and said, hey, you can't do that to us. That's racist. I go, no, that's democracy. And that is, that is your rights being heard. I heard. I took everything into consideration. My decision is I'm voting against the project. I'm mm -hmm. voting against it because there's some principles that I have in an indigenous model as elected. I can apply those things in which if I build more buildings, I have to ask myself, where's the natural resource to allow me to vote yes for these buildings to exist? So I'm already changing the system by not saying, oh my God, I got the money in my pocket, let's just build it, it's okay because it's hip to do that. Mm -hmm. No, no, we were taught that if you don't have resources, you cannot go and strip more resources from nothing. 
And they often tell me, you're crazy, Vincent. You know, we're never going to get enough water. You know that LA is in a drought. I said, no, but what you guys are doing wrong is you're creating something called toilet to tap. That's not natural. It does not fit within my model, the way I was brought up and how I think. If this is not rainwater and it's not coming down from a river into a mountain naturally, then we don't have a natural resource. What we have is greedy motherfuckers in the city council that are coming, knowing that they're screwing the city up, building it up more than what it can take, and then you're going to be forced to take toilet water. So my question to them in the city council at the time is this. Who will be drinking the shit water? Because I know it's not going to be Beverly Hills and no one. You're going to throw it to the poor people over here. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these voices, as much as they dislike me in there, again, they have to be civilized to me. They have to take my into consideration in the middle of meetings where hundreds of people are listening. And some people do come back and say, hey, that's right. I can get some white people. Maybe they might be crazy or something. But they come back and they say, hey, I didn't think about toilet to tap and that we don't have a natural resource and we have rolling brownouts. How? Mm-hmm. What is the city doing? Yeah, because wake up, fools. Mm-hmm. Now racism, I often tell people, racism has changed in a lot of ways. Racism has always been racist against, you know, Chinese, blacks. Now it's it's money, green. It will discriminate even against a white person now. Absolutely. When you look at it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? So if you're not green, you're not part of this, the situation. AKA Trump supporters. Yeah. <laughs> you know? You know? I mean, it's they'll turn their think. back. They'll turn their back on everyone. And that's what monarchs have always done. And that's what I'm saying. This is the monarch system that's just transplanted in it. And it got a clever way of going, look, we follow this paper that's kind of Indian, right? But in in my eyes, the elites of the of the European um, monarchs came to this land, infiltrated, and now are running big business through centralized banks. You know, it, it's it's going to be a challenge to change things. But when we go back to our systems and, and belief in who we truly are, regain our sovereignty, each individual, that what is really becomes power. You know, when you're sovereign. Right. Because I don't disagree with your methods or or your tactics. As a matter of fact, I look at it as everybody coming together. Okay, you're going to go that way. Okay, I'm going to go this way. Mm -hmm. You know, and we're all going to meet up at the same place. A better place for our seven generations. That's what even the people of of these three neighborhoods, La Loma, Palo Verde, Palo Verde and Bishop. And Bishop <laughs> did, right? They, they made sure yeah. that they were going to go, hey, come over here, look at this, how you plant a seed. Yeah. You know, this is how you make a flute. This is how you cut the squash. That's more powerful than anything because at one point you're going to use those skills. And I always challenge the land back, right? People say, land back, land back, land what? You're going to go sign a contract and put it up in the air and go, look, I have the land back. Or are you going to have a deep connection with the earth? Are you going to understand the water? Are you going to have appreciation for air? And know the power of your soul, which is our fire. Those are very important elements that I think once we regain those understandings, then it makes it harder for us to take advantage of people and misuse resources. No, that's true. That's true. Damn. Absolutely, guys. It's a jam-packed house. Got some legends in the building. You know, um, if you didn't get informed today, 
Man, you weren't really listening. So, so <laughs> they came with it. The brother, so, the brother Melissa, came we, with the information. Melissa, we have a packed house. Melissa. People are tuning in. We even got more visitors coming in. What's your message to the audience? What's your message to the community right now? My message is that the power is within ourselves. Um, there's so much potential that's infinite. Um, we have a visual representation when we see ourselves in that stadium, right? The power, our economic power, our strength, our energy, our money. So when people say that we're outnumbered and we can't, no, we're out organized. We have the numbers, we have the money, we have the energy. Even our communities that are um, gang active are neutral there, right? I mean, they kill each other outside, but in the stadium, peace treaty. <laughs> you know, so to me, um, don't tell me that it's impossible. I think that shows the power of who we are. And I think we need to wake up to that and redirect, redirect that energy to ourselves, our communities, our future, our children. And so I'm just grateful to the three indigenous warriors and the two banner droppers that uh, went in there and handled business because I think it needed to be very in front of everybody's face. Um, I think a lot of people had heard and seen um, the images, you know, the displacers, me showing up, me tagging them on um, the internet and, you know, just different things. And it was like, oh, like annoying, annoying, like get out of here, you know, it's it. So that really was the showstopper to say like, hey, we have to really pay attention. And that's what um, is very important because again, there's too much energy focused on something that has nothing to do with us. It hasn't benefited us. Um, what do they talk about? Like that you had to break into it, right? Yeah. So um, like Vince and all of us say like, if you have to break into something, that means that you weren't wanted. <laughs> so why are we there? Why are we filling those seats and those stands and giving our money so willingly when we lack so much? Even like with LA Unified School District, we're 80% brown people. Um, there's no curriculum that reflects us. It doesn't teach us about ourselves, um, but it's also um, it's strategic because you can't empower somebody and oppress somebody simultaneously. So you have mm -hmm. to pick one. And so therefore that's why we lack. You know, even uh, civics was taken away in the 1950s because it was projected right now, like how we are the majority and the census just proved that, even though we knew that before the census said that. Um, it's just, it's important that we wake up and really see. And I really think that we need to really take our energy and our finances away from that corporation. Wow, that is well said. And you know what? At the end of the day, the LA Natives community supports one another. And I have to say, if you guys are going to sit there and buy a LA hat or a LA jersey or LA t-shirt, best believe before you make that purchase, you guys have to buy one of these t-shirts, the Displacers t-shirts. Now, can I ask you, uh, are, are they available online? Where can we find these t-shirts? Are they just limited editions? Um, they're on our website or you can DM us on our social media platforms. But more importantly than um, buying our shirts is also understanding that when you do spend your money with the Dodgers, where your money goes, and that does go, in, um, they invest in developments that show up in your community as luxury housing. So you pay for your displacement. You know, so um, Dodgers equals displacement while standing on top of your ancestors. You know, so we really have to understand how serious this is and why these um, indigenous warriors did what they did. 
This wasn't for clout. This wasn't for um, to showboat. This was serious. This was a real action, a major action that took place that, I mean, a lot of people just like brushed it off, didn't really realize the significance of what they had accomplished. This is serious, you know. This was um, also t done on September 15th, which is the day of the Grite. This was a war cry to our community to wake up. You know, even at the beginning of that um, that game, Edward James Olmos and Fernando Valenzuela came out and they were talking about that. Wow. You know, so you can YouTube that and find that. And um, it's purely coincidental, but I mean, just the significance that it happened, like you couldn't have lined it or planned it up any better. I mean, there was an all mariachi women's um, thing of mariachi players, you know, all of these things that were significant that the Dodgers used to market our community to capture us. Again, well, pay attention, you know, we I have to really pay think, attention. I don't think there's enough white community to support that ball game, that ball, that ball team, you know, that whatever the baseball team because like you said 80 percent of that fan base 90 percent of that fan base is you know mexicanos chicanos latinos whatever you want to call yourself i mean they're giving like sister said millions and millions of dollars every time they go to a game so this is why everyone that's watching and it's going to be listening to the spotify make sure you guys go visit www.buriedunderthebluecom amazing website Cop the t-shirts, support, cop a LA Natives t-shirt, uh, grab a sticker. Hopefully, you know, uh, just DM that page and I'm sure they'll send you a sticker if you want one. Um, I want to thank all the guests that jumped on today. This Absolutely. is such a legendary interview. Like we could go on for hours, right, Zero? Absolutely. But this this conversation is what was definitely needed. I want to shout out Yvette. I want to shout out Jag. I want to shout out Melissa. Thank you. I want to shout out Chente. Chente. Yep. Chente. And man, Eden, um, Wendy, Eden, Wendy. So, so Zero, any last words? Absolutely. It, there's going to... When we started our group, El Vu, in 20, 2002 to 2012, we knew a shift was going to happen. And this statement made by these individuals, these warriors, as, as Melissa called them, are these little sparks, right? They're these little sparks that hopefully will catch flame, right? And inspire. And inspire. Inspire the youth to question where they're going to spend their $50 at or $100 at or $300 at. That maybe a family might go, hey, man, I'm not going to drop $500 to this guy who doesn't give a shit about me, right? <laughs> you know, these, these owners do not care about you. And like Melissa pointed out, as I have pointed out, it comes with investors, right? They, they fly people out. Come to the Dodger game. I'll give you box seats. You're a millionaire. Look, there's some property over here in East L.A. you could buy. It's the hippest spot. And that's what we call genderfying now. This is not new. But our son is new. Our ability and our time to really get to know each other, which is why we created this platform called LA Natives. Because LA Natives doesn't just have a podcast. We do events. We do workshops. We have Malinali Superfoods. Hopefully, we can inspire community on a level 
that brings a focus and using our ancestral medicine has to bring change. Our ancestors were accurate to the day that they said that our sun would go down, but they also said it would rise again. And these actions are those things that are rising. It's up to us community to pay attention and to lead our family to the prophecies of our abuelos. And they said that we would come back and we would learn this medicine again and that we would share just like the three communities of Palo Verde, La Loma and Bishop. <laughs> By the end of this show, I'm going to have them locked in. You know, thank you so much for coming and sharing this beautiful message, the truth. Enough with living in lies. The Dodgers displaced a lot of Mexican indigenous families. And they didn't do it nice. Violently. They did it very violently. So think twice when you spend your dollar. With them. Yeah. Think twice when you go and you say, hey, I was at the game. Yeah, ha, ha, ha. And and then you're like, you know, but they have a horrible history. Just like everything else that came over here and displaced indigenous people. This coast was once Mexico. And we lost the war. So we are the children of prisoners of war. We need to reorganize, refocus, believe in ourselves, and know that this is not an overnight thing. This is going to take, like my brother said, a couple of lifetimes. But if we pass on that baton with firm wisdom and love, then I do believe that our great ancestor, Cuauhtémoc's prophecies will come true and have already started to come true. You holding that wisdom and challenging them in those seats, saying no to them in their face, is one part of this movement. But like Masatin said, you're just one hair. So am I. So is she. So is he. Everybody becomes one hair on a big spider that ends colonialism, racism, and the evil doctrine of discovery. We're going to find the root and we're going to pull it out. Because that's what our abuelo said that we would do one day. Because that's how much we love our children. So, thanks once again for coming on to the whole LA Natives crew. DJ Warlock One, Armando, Jag, Yvette, Melissa, and Chente. We'll see you next Wednesday. Chica Tiawe. Love you.